Well, welcome to episode four of the Grand Scheme of Things. I'm Bill McKim, your tour guide. This is where we look into what science can tell us about ourselves and our place in the universe. I'm now organized to the point where I have an email address where you can contact me if you're looking for more background or source material. Soon I may be able to send you transcripts, but I'll need to clean them up a bit first. Or if you just want to tell me what you think. The podcast email address is tgst at bell.net. That's tgst as in the grand scheme of things at bell, B-E-L-L, well that's my telephone service, dot net, N-E-T. Oh yes, the banjo player wants to know what you think too. At one point, I thought I would have one episode that would deal with both time and free will. But after I started out, it soon became apparent that I was going to have to deal with time and free will separately in two podcasts. So I put together episode three of TGST on time, and then started on four, free will. That's this one. It soon became apparent that I was going to have to break down into two episodes, four and five. This One, episode four, will try to cover the historical and philosophical origins of the concept of free will. And the next, episode five, I will talk about actual data, what we have learned about freedom of the will from the laboratory. But before I do that, I want to take a little tour and tell you the story of Galileo. I'm sure most of you already know this, but bear with me for a little while. presumptions about the world we live in. In most cases, these are very basic presumptions based on universal observations and common sense. And because they seem to work, we just assume they're true and go about our business without questioning them. But from time to time, someone comes along, usually a scientist, and suggests that one presumption or another may not be as it actually seems. This normally upsets people. Consider the story of Galileo. For as long as there have been people on earth, on the surface of the earth, it was obvious that the earth stood still, and the sun and the moon and the stars moved across the sky. Everyone could see that it was true, and it made perfect sense. It was so obviously true that complete mythologies were made up around it in most cultures. Egyptians believed that the sun was the god Ra, who was driven across the sky in a chariot of fire. Later, Christians developed a cosmology that made the earth the center of the universe. This made it very tough to suggest otherwise. Suggesting that the earth was not the center of creation was not only against everyone's obvious experience, but it was heretical as well, as Galileo found out. Most of us know the story of Galileo. For thousands of years, people used celestial events for such purposes as the timing of planting and harvesting of crops. But during the European Renaissance of 17th and 18th centuries, astronomers became increasingly preoccupied by predicting events in the heavens, including the motion of the planets, which seemed to wander around in the night sky. From time to time, these planets even appeared to move backwards against the background of stars. Before Galileo, Ptolemy had developed a scheme in which the Earth was the center 
of many concentric spheres which all revolved around it. This seemed to work fine for the sun and the moon and the stars. Uh, each seemed to have its own sphere, but predicting the motion of the planets was very difficult using this model because planets didn't seem to be attached to a sphere or anything else. The Dutch astronomer Copernicus had proposed an alternative theory, that the sun was the center of the universe, as it was then, and the earth and the planets revolved around it. The Copernican model made it much easier to understand and predict celestial events and the behavior of planets, but really offended a lot of people, especially the church. Galileo observed the heavens through the newly invented telescope. He improved Copernican theory and was the first to apply mathematics to the study of celestial events, and everything he found supported Copernicus. This got him into big trouble with the church. For some time he avoided problems with the church by pretending that his theories were mere mathematical supposition and not a defense of Copernicus. In other words, he pretended that the Copernican view was just a convenience for predicting motion of, motion of celestial bodies more easily and didn't resemble reality. Well, this only worked for so long and Galileo was eventually forced by the church to recant and he lived the remainder of his life under house arrest. Legend has it that, after recanting by declaring out loud that the earth does not move, he muttered under his breath, and yet it moves. About 350 years later, in 1992, in a ceremony in Rome, Pope John Paul II officially declared that Galileo was right. The sun is the center of the solar system, and the earth and planets circle around it. Even though we look up in the sky and see the sun move, and have no sensation that the earth is moving at all. The point of the story is that there are many things that seem readily apparent, and, as a result, we presume that the way it appears from our perspective is reality. Often assumptions, although incorrect, work, up to, work, work for us up to a point. The trouble is that once people think that they understand something, especially something obvious, it's very difficult to get them to change their way of thinking. But that's precisely what I want you to do. From the perspective of people standing on earth, it is obvious that the earth stands still and that all other objects like the sun and the stars move around it. But Galileo had the benefit of the newly invented telescope, and this changed his perspective. All of a sudden, he could see in his mind's eye that the sun stood still and the planets, including the earth, circled it. He could even watch something similar happening through his telescope because he could see a number of moons circling Jupiter in the same manner. Discovering the truth was all a matter of shifting perspective. I talked about time, and I presented the case that the understanding we all have about time is probably an illusion. The picture that we all have of time was given to us by Newton, who said that time was a fundamental property of the universe. It would exist even if the universe didn't exist, and that time passes everywhere at the same rate. 
But then along came Einstein and said that time was not like that at all. He said that there was only space-time, and that that changed depending upon whether you were moving or close to a source of gravity. So, so that time was different depending where you were in the space-time block and for how fast you were moving. Your future could be in someone else's past, and likewise your past could be in someone else's future. As I explained in the third episode, in the Einsteinian vision of time, the universe exists as a four-dimensional block, three spatial dimensions and a fourth dimension for time. In this block, the future is fixed, just like the past, and cannot be changed. One important implication of Einstein block universe is that if the future is fixed, there cannot be such a thing as free will. Nothing we can do will change the future, or the present for that matter. We all take for granted that our minds, our conscious selves, can influence the future, that we can decide to do something and then do it, and what we do is completely free of constraint. Here is a simple thought experiment. Take a pencil or any such object and hold it in the air. You know, make sure it's a pencil or something that's not going to break. Now I'm going to count to three, and during that time you must drop the pencil or not. So, get your pencil out and get ready. Okay, ready? One, two, three. The game's over. What did you, what did you do while I was counting? Well, you were making a decision. If you drop the pencil, ask yourself if you were free to have held on to it. And if you held on to it, ask yourself if you could have dropped it if you decided to. Whatever it was you did, could you have done otherwise? Well, of course you could. But how can you know for sure? As we have seen, perspective is everything. Did the block of space-time already know what you would do? Was your so-called choice determined by events that happened 13.8 billion years ago in the Big Bang? Was your choice really free? Was that decision-making process you just went through determined solely by your past experience and genetic makeup, or did your mind, your conscious will, make it happen? Now those are not simple, they're tough questions. Losing our free will can be very threatening. As Nietzsche once said, the strongest knowledge, that of the total unfreedom of the human will, is nonetheless the poorest in success, for it always has the strongest opponent, human vanity. Well, that may be so, but there's a lot more involved than human vanity. No question, free will is very important to us. You have every reason to believe in it. Our religions depend on our ability to choose right from wrong. Our concept of pride and guilt reward and punishment depend on it, and like time, our languages presume it, and it gives us an easy way to understand and describe the behavior of ourselves and others. So we must not dispense with free will lightly, but keep in mind that losing free will might not be all that bad. The world could do with a lot less guilt and pride. So let's start by looking at the reasons for I uh, why free will may or may not exist. 
why it might just be another illusion. I have already mentioned one, the idea of the fixed future in which free will is impossible, brought to you a little over a hundred years ago by Einstein. Relativity theory has been around for a bit over a hundred years, but the story actually goes back over 2,000 years to ancient Greece. The beginnings of modern science can be traced back to the 6th century BCE, to the Greek philosopher Thales. Before Thales, natural events were usually explained as being caused by the gods, and the Greeks had a great many of those. Thunder, for example, was the rumbling of the chariot wheels of Zeus as he rolled across the sky. Thales maintained that all natural events had natural explanations and that gods had nothing to do with it. This idea, that we should not use supernatural explanations for natural events, is often regarded as the historical foundation of modern scientific thinking. In the 5th century BCE, Leucippus and his student Democritus took up the challenge of Thales and came up with a theory we now call atomism which was an attempt to explain all natural events without making reference to gods or anything supernatural. Democritus lived from 460 to 370 BCE. He proposed that the entire universe was made up of a void filled with tiny particles far too small to be seen by the human eye. He called them atoms, and he claimed that everything we could see or touch in fact, the entire universe was made up of atoms that are constantly in motion, bumping into each other and joining up with each other according to a set of rules and their particular properties. It was these atoms, he said, that created the material that we can see and touch, including ourselves, and gives them their properties. Furthermore, by knowing everything about atoms, you could know everything about nature, everything about the world that those atoms created. Atoms are now a familiar concept, but the idea was quite revolutionary 2,400 years ago. Modern atoms, however, are thought of quite differently from Democritian atoms. Our atoms can be split. Democritian atoms could not. Nevertheless, atomic theory was fairly successful, but had one snag. It did not permit freedom of the will. Many years later, in... 306 BCE, in Athens, the philosopher Epicurus adopted and promoted the atomist theory. He was not particularly interested in understanding nature. Epicurus founded a school of thought concerned with the best way to live your life that could promote maximum happiness and minimum worry, sort of the Alfred E. Newman of the ancient Greeks. The reason he adopted atomism was because he believed that explanations of nature, using atomic theory, could make us happier than explanation in explanations involving petulant, vain, and often irrational gods that might just want to punish us with lightning bolts if we didn't make an adequate sacrifice. Furthermore, with the atomist theory, we need not be afraid of death and whatever came after life, because there was no afterlife or underworld. 
it was better to be at the mercy of atoms than of irrational deities. So, be happy. What, me worry? Not surprisingly, one big obvious drawback to atomism was that it did not allow for free will. But Epicurus tried to fix that. He proposed a modification of atomic theory. He suggested a compromise that the motion of atoms was not entirely determined, that sometimes they swerved from their predetermined path. He never did explain how this swerving created free will, but it did provide a chink in universal determinism that perhaps free will and possibly even God could squeeze through. Several hundred years later, Epicurean philosopher Lucretius wrote a long Latin poem advocating Epicurus's ideas to Roman scholars. But atomism ran into trouble in the 4th century when the Roman emperor Constantine converted to Christianity, which became the official religion of the Roman Empire. It did not approve of Thales' naturalism, the lack of free will, and Epicureanism, and it disappeared for 1,300 years. But the Democritian theory of atoms was rediscovered in Europe during the Renaissance of the 17th and 18th centuries, and adopted by many scholars of the Enlightenment, like Descartes and Laplace, who created our friend the demon, and you met our demon friend in the first episode. Now, for a minute, let's talk about the 17th century French philosopher René Descartes. He was the guy that said, I think, therefore I am. He, too tried to find a way to accommodate free will into science. He postulated that there were two kinds of substances, extended substance and thinking substance. Descartes postulated that our bodies and the rest of the universe is made up of extended substance, but our minds are made of thinking substance. Because it, made, because it was made of extended matter, Descartes did not believe that the brain was capable of thought or feeling. Its job was just to make the rest of the body move and provide sensory information about the world to the thinking matter. He was not even sure that extended matter actually existed, but he was sure that thinking matter did, and that he, that is to say his conscious self, his mind, his soul, was made of thinking matter. Hence, I think, therefore I am. While the brain was made of the same material as the rest of the world and followed natural laws, our mind was made up of a special thinking substance that did not have to follow the laws of nature. The mind, therefore, was capable of free will. Descartes claimed that our mind, or spirit, or soul existed outside the brain and interacted with the brain via an organ known as the pineal gland. He chose the pineal gland because the brain is entirely symmetrical. Everything on one side has its counterpart on the opposite side. That is, with the exception of the pineal gland. There is only one pineal gland, and it, lasts, and it lies between the two halves of the brain. We now know that thinking substance in the pineal gland business is wrong, but the notion of the mind as being separate from the brain, is still widely accepted. This idea is called dualism, and is widely assumed by most people, including many who, otherwise, claim to be scientists. One interesting implication of Cartesian dualism 
is that only humans had access to thinking matter, and therefore only humans had souls. Only humans could think, and only human, humans had free will. In fact, he believed that only humans were capable of experiencing sensations. Only humans were conscious. Descartes created a vast gulf between humans and other animals. The presence or absence of the soul made all the difference. For this reason, Descartes thought it would be okay to dissect animals while they were still alive, a, a practice known as vivisection. The animals might squeal and writhe, but this was just a reflexive action of the brain. Animals had no sensation of pain, so vivisection was not being cruel. Unfortunately, these attitudes survived for a long time, and it is still evident today in the manner that some people treat non-human animals. We have Descartes to thank for that. Quantum theories. Following in the brave tradition of Epicurus's swerving atoms and Descartes' thinking substance, I should mention quantum physical explanations of consciousness. These theories are attempts to explain consciousness itself as arising from some of the more mysterious and spooky aspects of matter at the quantum level, such as entanglement and superposition. These are natural phenomena, but they do not seem to follow deterministic laws. They are not specifically designed to provide for consciousness that is capable of free will, but rendering a brain capable of generating what we call consciousness, that is, a non-deterministic brain from which consciousness can emerge. There have been several attempts to incorporate a role for quantum effects in the operation of neurons, the nerve cells that make up the brain, but the best is known by Roger Penrose and Stuart Hameroff. Penrose was, is a renowned theoretical physicist and is best known for his work with Stephen Hawking on black holes. Hameroff is an anesthesiologist. He suggested that quantum effects were capable of influencing the operation of neurons at the level of microtubules in a way that the operation of the entire nerve cells could be altered by the collapse of a wave function in a microtubule, a tiny little organ inside a neuron, and other cells for that matter. The problem of this and other such theories is that they do not meet the criteria of scientific theories because they're not falsifiable, and will likely be that way for a long time. In addition, at least with regard to the Penrose and Hameroff microtubular theory, Max Tegmark, a professor at MIT, has pointed out that quantum systems in the brain decohere in less than a picosecond. Now, a picosecond is 1 to the minus 12th of a second, that is, less than 1 million millionths of a second. But a nerve cell reaction takes a few milliseconds. Now a millisecond is one one thousandth of a second. This is trillions of times longer than any quantum event, and for this reason it is not very likely that quantum events could directly be able to influence the operation of nerve cells, let alone provide for the consciousness with free will. The existence of free will is actually a crucial question for the science of psychology because 
if the behavior of humans is controlled by free will rather than natural laws, that would make human behavior supernatural. And, as I explained in the first episode, science cannot study the supernatural. It would, be not, it would not be possible to falsify hypotheses about human behavior. Let me give you an example. The study of addiction. Later in this series, I will be talking a great deal about addiction. In fact, it was the study of addiction that spurred me on to try to understand such philosophical concepts in the beginning. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association that's the DSM for short, is a manual for the diagnosis of psychiatric and behavioral disorders. It provides the criteria for any psychiatric diagnosis, including addiction. I will go into greater detail in later podcasts, but for now, I will tell you that the DSM makes the distinction between drug use and addiction by saying that drug use is controlled behavior meaning that the user could stop using the drug if he or she wanted by exercising his or her will. They don't use the word will, but that's what they mean. An addict, on the other hand, has no control over the use of drugs. In other words, the addict had a disorder of the will. That very approach cannot be scientific because it implies the existence of a supernatural process. How can one distinguish between a controlled behavior and a non-controlled behavior? That would be just like trying to distinguish whether crocuses bloom in the spring because of increased heat and daylight or because they were sprinkled by fairy dust. In other words, it's not possible to gain any meaningful insight into a great deal of human behavior by using concepts like free will. Consequently, it is impossible to develop useful treatments for behavioral disorders. Supernatural concepts like free will have greatly hampered our ability to treat addictions because they suggest that addiction is the addict's fault and it is a sin or a crime rather than a disorder. Thinking like that causes a resistance to providing treatments based upon drug substitution and harm reduction which have been shown to be effective in saving and changing lives. But don't get me started. That's another podcast for another day. Enough philosophy and history. In the next episode, I will take a look at research into the existence of free will, or at least the illusion of free will, and show some actual data. Okay, Mr. Banjo Man, take us out of here. 